Hello and welcome to the Data Cloud Podcast. Today's episode features an interview with Saad Zahir, VP of Data Science and Engineering at Endeavor. In this episode, Saad shares with us how we're living in the decade of data and how he's seen that play out in industries across the board, how the Snowflake ecosystem makes it easier for Endeavor to do their work, and how societies can never invest enough in the education of their citizens. So please enjoy this interview between Saad Zahir and your host, Steve Hamm. Do you want to learn how the Snowflake Data Cloud can take your company and your career to new frontiers? From August 3rd to October 30th, the Data Cloud World Tour is making 26 stops around the globe to share how to use and collaborate with data in unimaginable ways. Hear from fellow data, tech, and business leaders, and get the latest on generative AI and innovations at Snowflake at an event near you. Learn more and register at snowflake.com slash data dash cloud dash world dash tour. Saad, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Uh, it's great to be here, Steve. Thank you so much for the opportunity, and I'm uh, quite, uh, quite pleased to be able to speak with you today. Yeah. Hey, you know, what a fascinating company Endeavor is. As a matter of fact, I think I'm not being too radical by saying I, it's, the, it's the most interesting and unusual company we've ever had on the podcast. So I'm going to let you explain things. You know, you, you've got every, links to everything from Marilyn Monroe to the character Ari in Entourage, the TV series, to the UFC. So pull it all together for us. Tell us about Endeavor's roots and the array of businesses it's in today. Of course, thank you. You know, Endeavor is a very interesting company. I think a lot of it is due to the visionary leadership of Ari, who is a very impressive person. He founded, you know, he's a he's a talent agent out of Hollywood. He's one of the one of the most successful, prominent talent agents in the history of Hollywood, I would say. It started as a talent agency. And then the the Endeavor company was really founded in 2009 after the merger of William Morris Agency and the original Endeavor Talent Agency. And since then, Endeavor has really grown to become a global powerhouse in sports and entertainment. It's grown by acquisitions and mergers in, in, in a very, very fast manner. Currently, Endeavor operates around the world in areas such as talent representation, events and experiences, owned and operated sports leagues, art fairs, and fashion. Some of the key businesses that are within the Endeavor umbrella include UFC, which is a mixed martial arts sports league, On Location, which is a premium hospitality provider, WME, obviously, which is, which is the talent agency, 160 over 90, Endeavor Streaming, The Wall Group, and on and on the list goes. The company operates around the world across various aspects of culture, including experiences, rights, on and operated sports properties. It produces about 800 events annually around the globe, from live events covering more than a dozen sports across 25 countries, to international fashion weeks, to art fairs, to music, culinary and lifestyle festivals. It really influences almost every facet of culture that we're aware of here in, in the English-speaking world yeah. and also in the non-English-speaking world. Some of the key events and brands that Endeavor owns are the Freeze Art Festival and then UFC. I mean, you couldn't think of two very different products, I would say. That's right. High, high, high culture, low culture. <laughs> <laughs> 
right? Or popular culture, let's call popular it Popular culture, yeah, yes. right. And, and with the recent <laughs> merger of UFC with the WWE, I yeah. think it's going to be a powerhouse in the, in, in I guess, the industry of sports, mixed martial arts entertainment. Yeah, yeah. I, I should also point out that we have a business called On Location, which is one of the leaders in selling hospitality for marquee events, including the Super Bowl, Ryder Cup, Wimbledon, Miami Open, Bear Jackson, which is a collective car auction business. And recently, well, a couple of years ago now, On Location won the rights for the first time in the history of the Olympics to be the official partner to the IOC to sell the Paris 2024 as well as the Milano Cortina and LA Olympics in 2028. Okay. So it's a very exciting time for us. It's, just, it's, it's almost mind-blowing, just the variety of businesses and, and kind of business models that the company operates in. Hey, I just want to quickly note, you, we, you mentioned Ari. That's yes. Ari Emanuel. And some people may know Rahm Emanuel, former yes. Chicago mayor and also chief of staff to President Obama. So that's the that's his brother, and that's the, the connection that a lot of people made. And the other thing I just want to mention is you mentioned WM. That's William Morris. So yes. the William Morris Agency, one of the storied talent agencies in Hollywood, and years ago, Ari and his group, and Endeavor, merged with William Morris, and that's really what brought together these... Uh, that re- I guess it was like the, the, the kindling that was lit mm-hmm. to start this fire. It was really an amazing ride ever since then. So thank you for, for a very complete description of the company's business. <laughs> it was fascinating. Hey, when and why did you go to work for Endeavor? And, and also, what is the role of Endeavor Digital in the company? And that's the part right. that, you, that you're in, right? Yes, yes. So I came to Endeavor at the start of 2021. It was the middle of COVID. My family and I, my wife and I, we had just moved to New York. And I had been working in, you know, what you would call traditional technology companies in Silicon Valley. I'd worked for eBay, I'd worked for Cruise. And, you know, Endeavor, uh, you know, is not a technology company. So for me, coming from typical technology companies to work for a media company was, was a big change. And so it was a important you know decision i'd love to tell that story a little bit so hmm. i had been leading data science and analytics teams for quite some time and in my in my career i had usually taken over a team and grew it and scaled it but the culture of the team the culture of the organization was already fairly well established the opportunity at endeavor was to come in and build out the data team from scratch right i was the first hire and the mandate was to come in build the team, build a platform. And so it was an opportunity for me to practice and institute some of my own ways of thinking about how a data team should look and operate and how the data platform should be structured. So it was just an opportunity to come and build not only the team, but also the technology. And that was really compelling for me. And I think if you think about, you know, being at Facebook in 2005 and 2006 and being asked to build a data platform. I mean, that would be an amazing opportunity. Right. That was, that's kind of how I saw the opportunity at Endeavor because it was something that they had never really done before. And they, had, they wanted to invest in a digital group. And my team was going to be part of the digital group where I was responsible for building the data platform to combine the data across the different business units create a platform that enables multiple applications across the portfolio to do both, you know, what I would call 
vertical as well as horizontal scaling, right? In the technology world, we're always talking about vertical scaling, which means if you do something once, you know, you can do it hundreds of times, you can do it thousands of times, you can do it millions of times. And so our, you know, in, when we put our engineering hat on, we're always thinking about how do we scale something vertically, because that is where the efficiencies from computers come. But at Endeavor, it's not just about vertical scaling, but it's also about horizontal scaling, which meant that if I go and build something for on location, how can I take that technology and apply it to IMG events? And then how can I take that and apply it to Endeavor Streaming? And how can I go and take that and apply that to UFC? And so this notion of being able to horizontally scale solutions across the different business units that Endeavor has was extremely compelling for me. And that's why I was so excited to have the opportunity and come and build this organization here. I can see that. Now, had the had the company kind of just woken up to the value of, of of data? Was that really kind of a big revelation right then when you came on, or or were they were they kind of doing it but not doing it quite the way you're doing it now? I think I mean if you look at the time between 2009 to 2020, when you know it's only 11 years, and between those 11 years, Endeavor acquired and merged with so many companies. I mean they went from the talent business to acquiring IMG events to acquiring uh, uh, UFC. And so by the time we got into 2017, 2018, there was this notion that there's lots of different synergies between the different units that, that we have. And so obviously, I think Ari probably had this idea way back in 2009. It was only perhaps you know, 2018, 2019 was the right time for them to actually go and execute on that plan. Um, I would credit, you know, the start, not to the start of 2021, in fact, it goes back a couple of years. The head of digital here at Endeavor, his name is, uh, he's a gentleman by the name of Guy Shorey. I think he came to Endeavor, I think a year and a half before I started. And his his mandate was to come, come in and put forth a, a vision for how Endeavor should invest and build digital capability. So me coming into the team was uh, one you know, one step of a plan that Guy had put together for Ari. So they were kind of thinking about it. They were experimenting. They did some POCs and then they said, okay, you know, we kind of know what we want to do here. Let's put this strategy in in motion. And that's also kind of how I found Endeavor because Guy had hired a number of people that Guy himself was from eBay. He had hired a number of people that worked at eBay. And that was a connection that actually led me to come here because I had worked with some of his, his team members before and they convinced me to join this group. Yeah. Yeah. Now you mentioned kind of the scaling, vertical mm -hmm. and horizontal apps that go run across the business units. Um so you've kind of gotten into this a little bit, but at the high level, what are the company's most significant digital and data analytics platforms and projects? Yeah, so I'll start by kind of telling you about the the platforms that my team has built and supports. Okay. And okay. then I think as I describe them, it'll start to become clear some of the business use cases that they support. So what my team does today is it really has four distinct technology systems. The first is what I call our customer data platform. The customer data platform is a proprietary set of technologies that we've put together that really ingest and process all the data from the different business units and 
organize that data into very simple, clear customer profiles, and then expose it back to both business users as well as business applications. And this is a technology that you know, is plug and play for every single business unit within Endeavor. We've got lots of business units using it. So customer data platform is just one you know, set of tools that we have. And I would say it's a huge investment for Endeavor. It's a very significant piece of technology because it allows Endeavor to have a view across its customers, across all the different kind of, you know, I guess what you would call lowbrow and highbrow products. <laughs> that we have, right? So it's, it's, it's a huge investment, right? So that's one product that we have. Yeah. The second one is what I would call our machine learning platform. What the machine learning platform does is it basically enables machine learning applications on top of the customer data that we're ingesting and then exposing those models and applications back to, again, human business users as well as services. The third one is our sales platform. You know, at its core, Endeavor's many things, but it's really a sales engine, right? We sell so many tickets to so many events and we sell across such a wide variety of price points that you can be buying a $10 ticket to go to the Hyde Park Winter Wonderland Festival in London, or you could be buying a $100,000 hospitality package for your executive leadership team to go watch the Super Bowl. And to execute on these sales, we have a very large investment in sales. And so the sales platform is enabling those sales team members, those premium salespeople to use the data, to use the insights to deliver on their sales objectives and really arm them as they go to market. And the fourth one is what I call our marketing activation platform. This is where we farm out our data to marketing systems. Again, we're trying to market our events and experiences to consumers across the globe, across a variety of price points with different messages based on how much history they have with us. So the fact that we can do this now at scale to activate any event is actually quite significant. So from my perspective, you know, all of these are very large investments that the company has made. They don't pay off in one or two days or one or two weeks. In fact, you know, you, you start to see the value of them over time. In fact, you know, I like to tell the story where if you were an Endeavor customer, let's say four years ago, and you went to an event, let's say you went to see golf, a golf tournament, and then three months later, you know, your wife went to see an art fair, and then, you know, your, your, your kids went to see a music concert or a music festival. We would not talk to you as if we know you or know your family right, or right. that you've been a customer with us before. But with the customer data platform, we not, we're now able to understand that and actually speak to the customer that way. And as time goes on, the value of this is going to get even bigger and bigger for us. So it's, it's a significant investment for the company. And I would say these are actually you know, very important pro- projects that, that pay off in, across many different facets of the company. Yeah, no, I get that. So it, your sales platform, it's, it's interesting. It's kind of, it's a transaction platform, high volume, but also a cutting across business units and businesses, but also a sales management platform. Mm-hmm. So it combines all of those things together, right? Yes. Okay. All right. And data analytics on top of it too. That is really, that's really amazing. In fact, all four of those are amazing. I want to back up for just a, a second here. You have an impressive educational background, bachelor's at MIT, master's and PhDs in physics at the University of Pennsylvania, 
And then these analytics jobs, eBay and Cruise, which is one of the autonomous vehicle startups, you have your training and experience. How have your training and experience helped prepare you for the challenges you face at Endeavor now? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. I think if I kind of think about myself, I'm not a computer scientist. I didn't train as an economist or a statistician. I think a lot of my work at MIT and at UPenn when I was doing physics was really preparing me to be and act like a scientist. And I, I trained as a scientist, so I think I really call myself a scientist. And what, what scientists are really good at is doing two things. They're able to think extremely deeply about a problem. And I think that ability to think extremely deeply about a problem, going down to the, to the roots of it, and going back to first principles is what's really helped me throughout my career at eBay, at Cruise, and, and here at Endeavor. And so I would say, you know, that's also why if you look across the industry, most people that are successful in data science or in Wall Street as quantitative developers or in consulting are typically people that come from a scientific training background because they, the job requires them to think extremely deeply about problems. So that's one thing I take away from my education. The other thing I take away, I take away is, you know, when you go through a PhD, it's like, it's like, you know, you run a marathon, right? And you run a couple of marathons and then you know how to run a marathon. It becomes very easy for you. When you do a PhD, you learn how to stick with a really hard problem for many, many years and then solve it. So you develop that stamina, you know, that resilience to take a problem and solve it all the way through. It's not like you got a well-defined problem as a problem set and you can solve it in an afternoon. And so I think that resilience that you learn when you do a PhD is actually very helpful when you come into industry. And that's another thing I take away from having done the PhD. Obviously, what I do now is nothing like what I was doing when I was doing my PhD, which was in superconductors and semiconductors. Yeah, right. Right. But it's, it's the way of working. It's the way of thinking that's really helped me here and again in my prior roles. And then going back to eBay and Cruise and here, I think the common thread between all of them is, you know, they're different businesses, different verticals, different challenges, but the common thread is data. Right. It's all about getting the data, organizing it, understanding it, trying to convert a business problem into a data problem and then answering that question and then rinse and repeat and then scaling it across and doing it, you know, once and then 10 times and hundreds of times and millions of times. And so I think the ability to sort of see data problems across different verticals is something I've gotten very good at through the course of my career because I've worked in so many different industries. Yeah. But I wouldn't call myself an autonomous vehicle engineer or a robotics. <laughs> oh, I, I got call you. myself a data person. Yeah. No, no, I got you. It's interesting because what's going on in industries and in individual companies is nothing less than transformation. Mm-hmm. And we, we years ago, we talked about, oh, companies, you know, you, this was, company it wasn't a bank anymore. It was a software company, right? And now it's like, well, they're not, they're not software companies. They're data companies. That's the new recognition, and that's and they're and, and people are truly transforming companies around that that revelation. Mm-hmm. And it's not an easy thing, is it? I think it's not an easy thing because it's a lot of learning new technologies, new systems, new terminologies, bringing on people with different skill sets. 
But I think it always comes down to the same thing. You know, computers, since the computers have been around, are really good at doing boring things, right? And yeah. when we do boring things fast, quickly, efficiently, we create space for ourselves to do more complex things. And obviously, companies are, you know, recognizing that. And again, with the advancement in technology in the last, you know, 30 years, and then data technologies and cloud technologies in the last 10, 15 years, it's become very obvious that any company can can make, get become more efficient. I mean, it's it's amazing to think that my car wash, I can drop my car off at my car wash in my local town, and they can set up a service where a, a, a chatbot or an automated agent can call me and tell me that my car is ready for pickup and they don't have to have a human do that. Yeah. Right? And that kind of thing is possible for a very small business like a car wash to do with like no technical background or need to hire a software or infrastructure team. They can just go to AWS or go to you know yeah. any of the other cloud providers and create an account and get this thing going. It's kind of amazing that that's is possible and obviously yeah. businesses are are taking advantage of that. But it's hard because it's it's a new way of thinking. It's a new yeah. muscle that they have to build. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're, we're in such a transformational moment. I, I was just thinking about NVIDIA. So here's a company, that, that its first life, which was a tremendous business, was running games. It was the game platform. Yes. And then, then it kind of became a kind of a supercomputer platform. And now it's the AI platform. Yes. So here's a, here's a company that's had kind of like three... Three lives already, yes. and who knows? Yes. Who knows what's next? But but it's it's almost like at every tier of technology, you're seeing uh, uh, new uses for for you know. You said it's it's you know computers kind of do do the boring stuff. Well, you know they're doing it massively, you know, yes. and and in and in new ways and new and efficient ways. So it it really is amazing. And the other thing I would say is on this point, I think. You know, when I was talking about when I came to Endeavor and how it was such an exciting time, and I compared that to being at Facebook in 2006, right? I think the other difference between being at Facebook in 2006 and being at Endeavor in 2021 is the fact that in the day of, you know, in 2021, we had Snowflake. We have DBT. We have Segment. You know, we have, you know, we have uh, Prefect, right? So all these tools that allow you to build data products did not exist back in 2006. And Facebook right. had to build all this technology. So if, if you know, doing this, building the data platform today using these modern tools is just so much more fun. It's like you go to Home Depot, you buy a window, you buy a door, you buy a sheetrock and you make a house, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's so much faster and so much more efficient. Imagine if you had to build your own windows and yeah. build your own doors. That would take forever and you probably would not be even very good at it. So I think what's also happened is that in the data space, especially there's been so much innovation and so many new cool products that have come out that today, you know, the name of the game is how do you architect and put these pieces together to yeah. enable a use case? Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of what I had the opportunity to do it here. And I think any company that is building solutions in the data space is, is, has to go through the same process. Yeah, yeah. So you're basically... You have this tremendous advantage of having the the modern data stack mm -hmm. sitting on exactly. shelves in front of you that you can you can pick up. It's, it's really an ecosystem that's exactly. already 
pre-integrated because it's in the cloud. Exactly. Yeah. Now, you've mentioned Snowflake a couple of times. When and why did Endeavor start using Snowflake, the, the, uh, the cloud data platform? When we decided that we're going to build a data platform in-house, immediately it was going to be between Snowflake and BigQuery and Redshift, right? And I should not take credit for that decision because that decision was made by one of our amazing engineers and architects before me. His name is Roy. And by the way, you know, I wake up every morning and, and I, I say, thank God for Roy, yeah. because he's the one that actually picked Snowflake. And I think, you know, it was maybe a couple of weeks before I started. I, if I had come in, I probably would have made the same decision. But I'll tell you a bit of a backstory. Sure. I got exposed to cloud data warehousing at Cruise. Because before Cruise, I was at eBay. And you know, eBay is a very old technology company. When I say old, it's like it started in 95, 96, right? So they had built a lot of this stuff in-house. And I started my career working with Teradata and with Hadoop. And eBay oh, had right. deployment of Hadoop. It was on-prem. And so you know, I sort of dealt with that. And then when I came to Cruise, Cruise was on Google Cloud. And I got to work on BigQuery and all the Google Cloud tools. And I really got to see how much more scalable and efficient they were. And so when I came to Endeavor, it was going to be a no-brainer for me to build you know, everything on top of either BigQuery or Snowflake. And looking back now, you know, I actually feel pretty good that we picked Snowflake because a lot of the things that Snowflake has done over the last two and a half years are things that I would have wanted to, Snowflake to do if I was running Snowflake. It's like when I was at Cruise, I wanted something like Snowpark. I wanted something like a beautiful visualization tool that was very easy to build and customize on. And Snowflake did both of those things. So I feel like, you know, looking backwards, it was actually the right call to go with Snowflake and invest in it. And so we started with Snowflake back in 2021. I made the decision very early on to centralize everything around Snowflake, use it not only as data lake, but also as a analytics engine, as well as a source of process data. Because remember, I came from a world where process data used to live in Teradata and raw data used to live in Hadoop. And so data scientists would spend all their time, you know, moving data from one place to the next for their reporting and then run into resource issues with Teradata and couldn't run their queries or queries are too expensive, blah, blah. There's a lot of overhead with that. With Snowflake, you could do big data processing and small data processing in the same place. And it, it served both purposes and it was so simple. Now, granted, we could use other technologies. You know, we could use S3 buckets or GCS buckets to sort the data, but it was just going to be so much harder and complex to have to maintain two different systems. So for me, you know, coming in, it was kind of obvious that I wanted the platform to be extremely simple. I wanted to just use as few tools as possible. And so we centralized on Snowflake as our lake analytics engine. And then as Snowflake released new capabilities like Snowpark and Streamlit and container services, given that I had already been imagining that we would use these things when we have them and had use cases for them, we were immediately able to start to leverage them and implement them in our systems right away. In fact, I think, you know, Snowflake, I have a funny story about Streamlit. So two years ago, or one year ago, actually, you know, one of our lead engineers and I sat down and we said, let's think about a really cool data visualization platform, which is highly customizable and which our data science team and our data engineering team can build because we're all Python developers here. And so we looked at Plotly Dash and Streamlit 
and a couple other tools like Observable and so on. And, you know, after doing the evaluation, we decided to go with Streamlit. And at that time, Streamlit was like a startup and, you know, there was an open source version of it. So we did some PSC, then we started to deploy it on infrastructure. And a month later, we learned that Snowflake was going to acquire Streamlit. So that was like, you know, <laughs> almost like a serendipitous moment for us. We're like, oh, this is awesome because we're already investing in this tool. Now Snowflake is going to acquire them. So these tools could be easily integrated. And then we talked to our account team right away. And then when Snowflake released Streamlit in private preview, we were one of the first teams to get our hands on it. And we used it and gave them a lot of product feedback. And, you know, we're still using it to enable a number of use cases. So right now we have both deployments running. Uh, the Snowflake one and the open source one. And yeah. it's been a really fantastic journey for us so far. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of people don't realize how how much Snowflake has gotten into being a an application development platform, a data application development platform. Can you talk a little bit about how you use it in that way? It's really important to underscore how important it is to enable data applications on a because the customers of our platform are not engineers. And Endeavor is not a technology company. You know, these are salespeople, marketing experts. These are agents, executives, finance folks. And so for them, you know, I, I wasn't used to interacting with this kind of persona when I came out of Silicon Valley. And they don't speak the language of data. And, you know, they, and they are in content production, right? Right. They make movies, they make art shows, and they have an eye for design and, you know, building things that are very beautiful and amazing interfaces. And so data products are not really known for having beautiful designs or having intuitive interfaces. So for them, it's really, for us, actually, it's really critical that when we build data applications that are enabling our customers inside Endeavor, that they are beautiful interfaces that are very inviting, that have rich user experience. And so for us, you know, it's always been a challenge and something that I still, you know, work on and struggle with is enabling a very beautiful interfaces. Now, if we went and created custom web tools, we'd have to like deal with so much infrastructure right. and security and compliance issues. The fact that we can build these applications inside the Snowflake ecosystem and the fact that other companies can build these applications and sell them on the Snowflake ecosystem makes all this so much easier for us because, you know, I don't have to go through another round of compliance review or cybersecurity review every time I onboard an app because it's actually served as part of the Snowflake infrastructure. So all I have to do is go through cybersecurity review with Snowflake and once that passes, then any application on the marketplace I can use because it's actually being served through Snowflake and Snowflake's infrastructure. Yeah. That saves a lot of time and money for enterprises. Yeah. It also means that you know it's like an app store for data. So I can I can leverage apps that other companies have made and use them on on our data. So it's a very exciting time for us, and I think it's not just exciting for us, but also for smaller companies that don't have the resources and the money to spend to hire large data teams to build these apps because they can just go and plug and play and, and start to use. Like I was looking the other day, you know, there's an app that Stripe has put on the marketplace, which basically mm -hmm. says you connect your Stripe account to Snowflake through this app and it will basically start visualizing your Stripe sales data for you. So if I'm a small business owner and I'm selling you know, I'm doing e-commerce through Stripe. 
I can just give access to my business account through that app and boom, there's like a data application for me that I'm just paying for that. And I don't have to hire an applications team. I don't have to hire a data team. All I really have to do is have a have a Stripe account and a Snowflake account and I can start to like engage with that sales data. That's really amazing. I think that that kind of concept is not something that, you know, you could really think of being possible even like five years ago. Now, let's talk a little bit. You've, you've talked a bit about how you've got, you're building these apps, you know, you're adjusting the data from all the units, putting it all on Snowflake on the, on the, in, in the data cloud. And then you're building these apps that can run across the business units too. So it sounds like you're really able to leverage data and share data and share insights across the businesses in ways that are really valuable to you. If you could just kind of drill down a little bit on that, how do you do it and what are you getting out of it? Right. I think the most important way to think, the, the, the best way to think about it is to really think about it from a customer perspective, right? So a customer that goes to an art event, let's say they go to the freeze fashion and the freeze art show in New York, they're probably also interested in other things. And the fact that we can market to somebody who is interested in arts and in sports, and as they travel to, let's say they, they go to Europe and we can market a soccer event to them is, is fascinating. This is kind of how we're able to use the data. So before the customer data platform, like we would not know again, within the same company, that is the same customer that we're talking about, right? So you could you could be a, an art lover, go to an event in, 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 in New York, and then you could be traveling to London on vacation. And, you know, there's probably an art festival going on in, in London. We could market that to you. If there's another If there's another related event that we are selling in Europe, we could market that to you. So the idea is that, Cross-event promotion and cross-event selling is definitely one area where we're really leaning very heavily into. Uh, it's also helping us find new customers, right? So previously, you know, again, like when you launch an event, you're spending a lot of money to promote it and market it and acquire new customers. But imagine if I have a new event that I'm launching in Los Angeles, but I could already tap into the Endeavor database for potential customers for that event in Los Angeles, right? I could go and say, okay, who are the people that have attended events for Endeavor in Los Angeles and see what their interests are and the ones that match, I could market to them. So again, acquiring new customers for events we launch or products we launch just becomes very, very easy for us because of the customer data platform. Yeah. You know, we, we, we mentioned briefly machine learning. And, mm-hmm. and kind of the role that plays in your platform. But, you know, it, pa- the past six months, uh, large language models are all the rage. And I wanted to find out how you're using large language models and, and what's Snowflake's role in that? Yes, I'll actually answer the first question first and then I'll come yes. to Snowflake. Sure, I'll try sure. to answer the first question a bit more broadly. Sure. You know, large language models have really come in burst forth in, in our in our consciousness in, in a very big way in the last, you know, six to eight months now, perhaps maybe a year. There's a lot of different use cases that many companies are looking at, right? For us, again, there are use cases that have to do with creating efficiencies internally, right? For our teams, 
as well as use cases that will help our clients. I would say at this point in time, we're just doing experiments, right? So imagine if you're a, a lawyer or a paralegal and you have to review a contract, right? And these contracts are long and they're complicated. You, we can have a large language model-based application that can summarize it for you and give you the key points that you need to read so that you can be more prepared before a meeting or when you're trying to pitch to a client. Imagine if we have unstructured data or unstructured textual data and we need to categorize it into categories, you know, set of categories that we want that we think makes sense based on our business context. We can have a large language model do that for us. And then we can have another human come in and do a sample of those categorization and spot check them. Imagine if we have a script that we get from a client that, you know, maybe we can sell or help produce. We can summarize that so that we get kind of the gist of it. So there's just so many applications of it across the company. We're obviously exploring not only the applications, but also the type of infrastructure that we would need to build and support those applications. And then obviously all the other things that enterprises care about, such as security and compliance and data privacy. And, you know, the fact that these models, that if, if we were to sort of build them and run them on our data, that they, that, that they do the right thing. And that's really where Snowflake comes in, right? Because with Snowpark, it has now become possible to deploy any machine learning model through a stored procedure or a user-defined function, right? So we have actually experimented with deploying large language models as user-defined functions and stored procedures and then using SQL to run them, right? So that makes that means that creating an interface which allows anybody who knows how to write SQL or perhaps you know, has access to a streamlit app, interact with a large language model that runs on Snowflake within our account on our infrastructure is now very easy. So from a implementation perspective, you know, my team has gone and like looked at some of this and we've kind of done some POCs. And the beauty of this is that we get the benefit of Snowflake compute, but we also get the compliance and security, right? Because when we host the model in our Snowflake account, none of that data ever goes out of our account. It doesn't go to OpenAI or Google or AWS, right? That no, no other company is seeing that data to train or improve their model. In fact, we can host it in our infrastructure. We can serve it through Snowflake. We can fine tune it and make it ours, meaning we can just use our data to retrain that model and make it learn the nuances of our business. And then it becomes our model. And we can train as many as we want, and we can train them for as many use cases as we want. So I think from an infrastructure and technology perspective, the possibilities are here. What we now have to do is, you know, agree on a few use cases and implement them. And that's definitely something that we're constantly thinking about internally. I'm sure we'll have, you know, we'll have some exciting applications to talk about maybe in a year or so. Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to understand. So you're basically, you're going out to one of these vendors of large language models. You're, you're basically sucking that model into Snowflake. And then you're training the model further in in your private garden, essentially. Is that the way exactly. it works? Yeah, okay. That is, and that is the way I think enterprises are going to use large language models. Yeah. And that is enabled by Snowflake, right? So I think, you know, and again, we don't even have to go to builders of large language models. In fact, 
the AI, the AI community is quite interesting, almost like the open source community of the software industry in the early days. A lot of these companies that are building models are actually outsourcing or uh, so open sourcing them. There's a there's a company called Hugging Face, which I think a lot of people that listen to your podcast are probably familiar with. Hugging Face is like a repository of AI models that have been published for research and development purposes by not only companies, but universities and other institutions. In fact, one of the most prolific publishers of AI models on Hugging Face is Facebook. You may have heard about, or Meta actually, now, now that we branded. So you may have heard about this model called Llama. And Facebook has actually open source Llama. It's available on Hugging Face. So, you know, we can take those models and, and, and test with, with them and just build PLC applications. And then once we see commercial value and, you know, ability to actually drive business, that's when we say, okay, you know, how do we take this thing that's been published and available and how do we use it at scale? So at this point, again, we're doing experiment in R&D, but it's an exciting time to be in this space for sure. So we've talked about Snowflake quite a bit here, but I want to kind of broaden out for a minute and also ask you to look into the future. So when you look out over the next year or so, uh, what are the major trends you see coming in data management and analytics? The ability for data scientists to develop data applications is quite game-changing because you know, in the old days, and also the ability for data scientists to develop machine learning models and deploy them is quite game-changing. So let me back up a little bit. Let's go back five years, 10 years. You would have data engineers prepare the data, and data scientists would take a prepared data set, do investigations, and train a model. Then hand it off to a machine learning engineer, and the machine learning engineer would take the model and rewrite it, and then deploy it and serve it, right? And that process would sometimes take months and it would, you know, rewriting the same code in different languages because you couldn't serve a model through Python. You'd have to rewrite it in Scala or Java and the infrastructure wouldn't support it. So you have to like get more compute, blah, blah, blah. It was just like a very complicated thing to do, right? To do one ML model, you needed like four people, right? What's happened now is with DBT and all the data going into Snowflake and with Snowpark and with Streamlit, the whole thing can be done by one person, right? The data scientists can take the raw data, process it and organize it themselves, make it look like the way they want. Then they can go and use that data to train models, keep you know, experimenting and researching until they get a really good model, again, in Python. Then they can go and deploy it on Snowpark and serve it as a UDF using a language that they speak, which is SQL, and then serve that model through a dashboard that they can go and build themselves in Streamlit, right? So all of this can be done by one person, which means that you will actually see a lot more efficiency, a lot more throughput. And, you know, again, you would see people like data scientists really stretching their strengths a little bit, right? Because when you build a data interface like a Streamlit app, it really challenges you to think about design. And data scientists are not trained as designers, right? So they will actually learn to become good designers. They'll learn to think about user behavior and how, you know, people interact with data apps and how they should interact with data apps. So we, we're going to see a lot more innovation in this space. I feel like we may actually start to see some templates and some specific formulations of, of how data apps are supposed to look. I mean, go back to when the iPhone came out, right? When when you had all these people making iOS apps and Android apps, 
All these apps used to look very different. The interface was very different. You know, the navigation was very different. But what's, what happened over the course of the, you know, the first three, four years is that all the companies that were, that were making these apps innovated on how the user interface for an iOS app should look or an Android app should look. And now you always see that little bar on the left with like the three lines, the, the mm. burger sign. That's right. That's right. They're all like, you know, people are kind of used to that. I feel like we're going to see innovation on how data apps are supposed to look because so many people are going to be building them. And so many people that understand the data are going to be building them and putting them in the hand of their clients that they're going to start to develop some themes and methods of how data apps should look. So I feel like it's a very exciting time to be in this space where, you know, going from an idea to market is become is really going to reduce quite a bit because the same persona, the same person, the same skills that can do those things. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, because the data scientists have been like, you know, superheroes for a decade. But the way you're describing it, they're going to have an even more, kind of even more breadth, even more centrality in in these data companies and these data applications. So I think, uh, you know, undergraduates out there, pay attention. This is your opportunity for a great career, you know? Well, I should also say yeah. it actually goes both ways, right? Because, yeah. yes, data scientists can do all this stuff, but other people, data engineers, uh, designers, yeah. app developers can also do this stuff, right? right? Because it is so easy to to go and deploy models. I mean, as I said, you know, you can go to Hugging Face and just take an AI model that somebody has published and serve it. So you don't even have to train your own model, right? If you're a Python developer, you can go and yeah. build an entire data application all the way from beginning to end yourself. Yeah. You don't even have to be a data scientist. So I think it opens up possibilities for other trades or other skill sets sure, to, sure. to do what data scientists used to be able to it's do. It's interesting. It's interesting. So people have different entry points, but they bring their exactly. skills and perspective and their task to it. So, yeah, that's very cool. I see the future. What a fascinating modern age we live in. Is this what the future holds? Now, now I want to challenge you a little more. I'm yes. going to ask you to put on your, uh, I'm going to ask you to put on your visionary cap for yes. a moment. Now look out five years or more. What are the major tech trends that you see potentially transforming business and even society? Yeah, that's a you know that's an interesting question because I've kind of thought a lot about it in the last few days as I've had time to mull over like the history of technology and it's a very interesting history. I mean, if you go back to the 2000s or the 90s, that was a time when a lot of offline businesses were coming online. You know, everything was, you know, we're building websites, we're doing basic things like e-commerce, we're basic, doing basic things like making payments on the internet, right? So that was just like a very, you know, simple change or like a step function change, but again, doing basic Huge things. impact, yeah. Huge impact, right? Then we came, come into 2010s and we saw two big phenomena. We saw the rise of cloud computing and then we saw the rise of social media. And again, due to the fact that, you know, the iPhone came out, right? And so everybody had a computer in their hands, and they brought their whole life to it. It wasn't just work, right, that you were doing in, in your desk. You were actually on your computer, on your phone, and having your whole life on it, you know, your friends, your family, your pictures, everything, right? And so the 2010s was really the decade of cloud computing, and it was a decade of social media. Right. You know, we come into the 2020s, and what's really happened in the last, you know, few years that's really prepared us for this is, there's been a massive amount of innovation in the technologies that surround 
the processing and aggregation and analysis of data. This is what's enabled the rise of machine learning products like ChatGPT or machine learning products like self-driving cars. So when I think about the next 10 years, I really think that this is the decade of data applications in the cloud. And I think this is probably going to be the most transformative thing in technology in this decade, because we're already seeing the impact of, I mean, all the most exciting things that we talk about today in Silicon Valley or in technology have to be, do with data. So this really is the decade of data. And what you'll see is more and more businesses, again, from large technology enterprises to blue chip, boring enterprises to small businesses to, you know, the car wash shop in my local town, all of them are going to start to leverage technology more and more and more. And they're going to leverage data more and more and more because, again, data is the fuel, is the fuel that drives a business. So it's a great time to be working in this space so that, you know, anybody who works in the data space and is building data products and technologies has an opportunity to be a leader in this in this decade. Oh, We're yeah. going to see a lot of innovation here, in my yeah. For your information, there's a lot more to ogres than people think. Really need to dig deep and get to know the real you. In the real up close and personal. So, Sad, we typically finish the podcast on a more personal note or lighter note. Yes. And I see from your LinkedIn profile that you're interested in causes, including economic empowerment and education. How do those issues fit into your life? Yeah, so, you know, I grew up in Pakistan and I've been very fortunate to have had the opportunity to go to some good schools, but also more importantly, be in the company of some amazing teachers, you know, all the way from my high school to when I came to college. And, you know, I've always firmly believed that education is, you know, the most important thing that we can do and invest in. So any opportunity I get to speak to, you know, politicians in, in the local area when I go back home, I always emphasize or want to emphasize the importance of investing in education. I like to say that you can never invest enough in education. It always, the, you know, the dividends of that always come back many, many fold. There's a great statistic. I heard this from Susan Hockfield, who was a president of MIT back when I was an undergrad there. And, you know, she, she used to quote this statistic where she said that after the war, World War II, every dollar that the U.S. government has invested in research and education has returned about $40 back to the economy. Mm -hmm. And I feel like if we take that, if we take that method and apply it to education across the board, not only in the United States, but also in third world developing countries and in Europe and China and Australia, we'll see that kind of math play out. So you can never invest enough. And the way, you know, again, like I lead a very busy life with, with my with my work, but every time I talk to, you know, anybody who is influential in politics or policy making, I kind of always emphasize to them that we want to, we should put more and more of our money and our investment in education. Like I live in a town here in New York, we pay very high taxes for our schools. Our schools have very well-paid teachers because of those taxes, but then there's underprivileged areas, not only in New York, but also in other states, 
where the taxes are not so high, so the teachers are underpaid, and the kids over there don't get a great education. And so I, I keep urging policymakers and politicians and representatives to direct both state and federal money towards spending that spending that money towards the schools in those areas which which are not able to afford the kind of taxes that you know we can afford here. So I think this is something that absolutely is like a huge area of interest for me. Yeah. And the second thing you said was economic empowerment. I think the the best way to affect change in the world is to enable people to be economically empowered. I firmly believe in that because when you enable people to be able to move from point A to point B for work. You create opportunities for them to better their economic circumstances. And again, on this area, you know, I, I like to think that the, the immigration laws that we have in the United States and in other countries where there's a lot of need for labor, for human resources, if they can be modified or improved so that labor can go from third world countries to countries where the labor is needed, it's going to create a lot of economic opportunities for people. So most of the development in human history, I think, has taken place when it's become easy for labor to move from point A to point B. Right, right. And I think a lot of this can be addressed through good policy and through, good, through, through sensible laws. And so that's something that I always try to emphasize, you know, again, anytime I, I talk to policymakers or, or politicians or representatives to, to do. Because I think those two are probably the most important things that we can do uh, to address, you know, the challenges that we face in the world today, in addition to, to climate change, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, climate change, that's a big one. You know, it's becoming so apparent that it, what are the, the dimensions of the problem and the immediacy of it. But I, I frankly feel positive. I feel like with cloud, with with data, with data analytics, with with AI, we have the tools to solve these very, very complex systemic problems. And for the first time, really. And I wanted to, I want to go back to something you said earlier about that at your core you're a scientist. You see yourself as a scientist. And this idea of that you that scientists think deeply about very difficult challenges and that they have stamina that they stick with a with a problem for a long time and i think we you can, we kind of live in this in this short attention span society but but thank god for scientists because we need them and i yes. want to thank i want to thank you for the work that you're doing you know you're obviously doing it for your company but i think people like you make advances and the 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 brilliance of them and the utility of them is shared the news gets around, the word gets around, the technology gets around. So thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. It really has left me inspired. So thanks a lot for, for, <laughs> for thanks a lot for all the all the great insights you've given us. How you approach data will define what's possible for your organization. Data engineers, data scientists, application developers, and a host of other data professionals who depend on the Snowflake Data Cloud continue to thrive thanks to a decade of technology breakthroughs. But that journey is only the beginning. Catch up on all the latest announcements from Snowflake Summit, including advancements with generative AI and LLMs, flexible programmability, application development, and much more. Watch now at snowflake.com slash summit slash livestream. <laughs>